Howard Ledbetter called me on Friday and said that Revelation was his favorite book. And would I permit him to have the first session today? <laughs> and I gladly consented. So, Howard, come on up. <laughs> well, I haven't heard of this. Oh. <laughs> we do begin our series in the revelation of St. John the Divine. Unfortunately, it's one of the most misunderstood books in the entire Bible. For those who love the book, they find it the most beautiful literature because of the promise that's there of the revelation of the ultimate nature of Christ which is there. But for others, the imagery is more than they can take. It is something that drives them away from the true meaning of the book itself, simply because the imagery is so far beyond our being able to comprehend. But this kind of literature was prevalent during the time in which it was written. There are only two books in the Bible that are apocalyptic. And apocalyptic simply means the hidden scriptures revealed. One is Daniel in the Old Testament. And the other is the book of Revelation in the New. And each of them are directed to a time of great trouble and it is written in order to encourage the people who are having to cope with the times. There's a danger in trying to take the book of Revelation and interpret it as a prediction of things to come just before the end of the age. Because in all probability, the material was written for the contemporaries of John who were facing great tribulation within their own contemporary lives. Even if it did relate to the people who were contemporary to John, those facts that he revealed, those principles about which he talked, are just as relevant today as they would be for any other age. And so when interpreted in terms of the message and trying to stay away from the chronology, it is authentic in every respect as to what Christ gave his life to do and what he taught. Now, the lesson writer in introducing us to the book of Revelation took a very unique approach. He gave us one step into the book of Revelation, and then he stepped backward into the time in which Jesus came into Jerusalem on the day that we proclaim as Palm Sunday. And there's good reason for that. It unifies Revelation with the time that has just immediately preceded. And it takes the personage of Christ and interprets him in terms of the Christ who has not yet revealed himself and the Christ who has been revealed and elevated to his place in heaven. And so with that twofold approach, 
we're able to see the continuity from the life of Christ into that which is revealed by John. Nobody really knows who wrote the book, even though he identifies himself. He says that his name is John, but he doesn't get further identification as to what John he might be. In the second century, he was declared to be, the book was declared to be written by John the Apostle. Justin Martyr made that statement, and it has held up until the present day. No biblical theorists have tried to dispel the idea that John the Apostle wrote it and introduced other possibilities. And they have some convincing proof, particularly in terms of the grammar of the book itself. It has been by those who are in a position to make such a judgment. The book of Revelation is the poorest Greek in the entire Bible, indicating that the person who wrote it did not have the same literary skills as did the writer of the fourth gospel. But at the same time, there were circumstances in which it was written that could give some accommodation to that. One being the circumstances of being on the Isle of Patmos, the lack of comfort in which the manuscript was written. Any number of things could explain that away. And it could easily be written by someone else. However, it doesn't matter who wrote it. The fact is that it is a book of comfort and encouragement to a people who were facing great tribulation in their lives. And it was his way of saying to them, hold on. It appears that everything has been lost, but it hasn't. The future is bright and promising. Now, the book of Revelation has two axes on which it would have some of that water. I don't know why I'm... It's not anxiety over the book of Revelation. <laughs> the book of Revelation illustrates two great powers that are relevant to the people and prevalent in the world. The power of God on the one hand and the power of Satan on the other. Now, the Jewish people had been told long before that they were the chosen people of God. And though they had gone through adversary adversarial times many times that eventually they would be restored as the kingdom that was experienced under David. They awaited the time in which a new David would sit upon the throne and the greatness of Israel would be restored. It didn't happen. They went from Babylon to being under the foot of Persia under the foot of Greece, under the foot of Rome. They had no freedom. There was no evidence in any way that they were going to reemerge as the people of God. So they fell upon this way of understanding the situation in which they found themselves. They divided history into two parts, the present time and the time to come. The time to come was the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord would be that time when the Messiah came to Israel and restored her in all of her greatness. And that's where the Palm Sunday story fits into today's lesson. Because when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, everybody was acclaiming him as the Messiah to put Israel back upon the throne and in their place in the world. 
They had no concept of the spiritual Messiah, which he really was. And so the book of Revelation is based upon the present time, which is under the control of Satan. Evil reigns. Christ is not upon the throne on the earth. But in the day of the Lord, then Christ will emerge and Satan will be overthrown and all the people will live in peace and harmony. So that's the basic concept on which the book of Revelation was written. Now John himself, assuming that it was the apostle, but no matter who he was, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his involvement in spreading the Christian gospel. Domitian was the king of Rome. He had set himself up as the one to be worshipped. He was the god that the people must bow down and worship. Christians do not worship other gods. John lived at Ephesus. Ephesus was the center of Christianity in the early time of the church. Paul established the churches. They grew, they prospered. We tend to think of Rome as being at the heart of Christianity in the first century, but Rome was not. That would come much later. Now it was Asia, Ephesus at the heart of it. There were seven churches throughout Asia in that area that was strongly Christian, whose oversight John the Apostle had responsibility. <laughs> and as John went to the Isle of Patmos, he went with the feeling in his heart that he was leaving seven churches behind who had no real guidance and spiritual leadership. And it was his intention to strengthen them as the best that he could. So the first three chapters of the book of Revelation has to do with a letter that he wrote to the churches that he had left behind. They were not letters written from his own hand. He described it this way. It was on the Lord's day. And I was caught up in a feeling of ecstasy. And suddenly Jesus spoke to me. And he said, write to the seven churches and write this to them. John said that what he recorded were the direct words of God, of Christ, telling him to pass this message on to each of the seven churches. Some he complimented, others he chastised based upon the way in which they had maintained the integrity of Christianity within those congregations. And those letters to the seven churches then are comprised in today's lesson, which concludes today with the statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Jesus was declaring that though things may appear to be otherwise, it has never been out of my purview from the beginning and will never be out of my purview up until the end. I am the beginning and I am the end. Coming back into the Palm Sunday aspect of our lesson today, and if you read your lesson, you know the lesson writer spent almost all of his time on Palm Sunday and very little on the Revelation part. But 
it was an attempt to say that there for a moment it was a matter of hope for the Hebrew people. The Messiah has come. Israel will be restored to her greatness. The day of the Lord has arrived. It was with that sense of expectation that Jesus went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The story is familiar to all of us, but deserves to be retold because of the magnificence of what took place. Jesus knew that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He had told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die. They had begged him not to go. Finally, when he was in it ongoing, they said, we'll go with you and we'll die if we have to in order to be at your side. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he knew that it was his last trip to Jerusalem. Jesus, in his humanity, had the same dread that any one of us would have going into an environment in which we knew it would result in our death. After he brought Lazarus from the dead, then the leaders of the synagogue were intent on stopping it right now. Too much publicity has gone out as to his powers and his influence. And from that time, they set out how they could trap him and get rid of him. Jesus deliberately walked into a trap as he came from Bethany into Jerusalem. He was walking into the enemy's camp knowing full well that they would find every way that they could think in order to trap him and to, de to destroy his ministry. He was very dramatic in his activities that day. The Bible is full of drama. God is a great dramatist. All of the prophets of the Old Testament uses dramatic events in order to put over their messages. And Jesus was no different. He dramatized his coming by getting on the back of a donkey and riding into the city so that all eyes would be upon him. If he were only there for the Passover and wanted to obscure himself from his enemies, he wouldn't have highlighted himself the way that he did by coming in on the back of a donkey. By doing so, he was calling all attention to himself, and the attention was electric. Everyone was excited. The king is coming. Hallelujah. Praises to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. To the people who were at his side, it was the day in which the Messiah would establish his reign. Jesus knew the feelings of the people. He knew the true purpose of his coming. And so this day would be very important to him in order to establish who he was and what he was there to do. But the humanity of Christ came to fore as he came down off the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And he paused for just a moment and looked out over the valley to the city. He saw that there were multitudes of pilgrims who had come into the city for Passover. He knew that there was expectation in those hearts of the, all of the Jews that a day, better day would be coming and Rome would be overthrown. He knew that his days were numbered. How would he establish himself in this brief period of time as a spiritual Messiah and not as a material Messiah that the people had expected? And so it was a strong mission 
that he brought into the city that day. But he stopped and looked over the city and saw all of the people gathered there. He knew the futility of trying to bring the people together with a sense of what he had to give to them. And with that sense of futility, he wept over the plight of the people. I have the gift and you won't accept it. I have the truth and you won't look at it. He knew as time closed in on him that he would have to die for what he had hoped to accomplish through his teaching and through his preaching. The people felt the significance of his coming into the city. This was the Messiah. They waved palm branches. And the lesson writer brought out that many took off their cloaks and threw them upon the ground to be trampled upon, many of whom had only one cloak. They would have to retrieve their cloaks and try to bring them back to what they were before, but chances are many would be mangled. But they didn't care. Their enthusiasm was so high. They did the only thing that they were capable of doing, ripping off their outer cloaks, throwing them in the path in which the crowds walked, and breaking off palm branches and weigh them in order to celebrate the coming of the king. One witnessing scene would have seen that this was a celebration of the entrance of the king into the city. And so he was, but not the king that they thought he would be. The Pharisees and others, seeing that all of the excitement that was surrounding his coming into the city, tried to appeal to his good nature to say, squelch the crowd, it's getting out of hand. Their fears were well-founded because the one thing that Rome wanted to do was to keep peace at festival times among the Jews. Of all the Roman Empire, the Jews were the hardest ones to control. They were so committed to their religion that nothing could pry them away from their commitment to God. Any little bit of effort on the part of one would cause the crowds to rise up against Rome. Jesus did not want that. Above all, the Pharisees didn't want it because they did have powers given them by Rome that would be taken away if Rome were to become disenchanted with their ability to keep peace. And so for good reason, they wanted the crowds to be quiet. Jesus was aware of that. It wasn't that he wasn't concerned over that problem, but he spoke realistically. The excitement is such the feeling of his expectation is such that if I were to cause the people to be quiet, even the stones would cry out in this moment. He knew the force, the impact of that moment. The Messiah was coming into the city to proclaim himself. In a sense, it was the coming of the end of the age in which the Israelites had awaited the Messiah because the Messiah was about to be proclaimed and what they were unwilling to accept in history was that moment in which God entered into the world through the Messiah to establish his kingdom. Now, Jesus didn't fulfill the promise of sitting upon the throne. The great expectation of the people of Jerusalem that this is the Messiah who will free us from Rome, that didn't happen. Instead, here they saw the one that they thought would free them condemned as a common criminal. 
the week to follow would be very traumatic for them all. So much so that those who cried out in great expectation cried out in their disappointment when the week was over and allowed him to be killed as a pretender and not as a true Messiah. Jesus died on Friday. This was contrary to any of the expectations of the people who had been awaiting a Messiah. This is contrary to the expectations of the disciples. How could he free Israel if he were dead? Not one of the disciples on Good Friday thought that he would be living three days since. They had accepted his death as final. And so far, the growth of Christendom that week, everything seemed to die. It appeared that it was all over. Then John wrote the book of Revelation, which says, no, that is a temporary end. The beginning of the real reign of Christ. He was given the privilege to seeing the risen Christ sitting in heaven. The remainder of the book of Revelation will be the words of this Jesus to John to tell to the people how that there will rage the battle between God and Satan. There would rage the battle between good and evil. But in the end, it would be triumphant. There would be a time of great tribulation, but at the end of that, those who remained faithful, they would have a relationship with Christ. All evil will be destroyed, and the greatest time to be imagined was before them. So the writer of our lesson material today established the end of the expectation of the Messiah who would restore Israel and introduced him as having overcome death, having returned to the Father where he would reign forever and ultimately receive all who had accepted him into that new life, that new kingdom. Any comments or questions? And ask anything you want. <laughs> I guess she's. That was much better than I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Lester paid me a high compliment. He asked if I would teach for three Sunday, Wednesday evenings at the Wednesday Nighter, which I agreed to do and will be doing a week from this coming Wednesday night, the role of religion in America. But his suggestion was that there be no format, but that for an hour each week that I stand up and just let everyone ask questions that they would like to have answered. I said, can you imagine standing up for an hour and nobody asking any questions? <laughs> but that was a compliment, the thing that I could feel in the question that anyone might ask. But I'll try my best if you have any questions. Yes. Is that basically the Orthodox Jewish philosophy today? 
Jewish philosophy today is the same as it was at the time of Christ. A Messiah will come, and a Messiah will restore Israel. Those who accepted him as the Messiah became the foundation of the Christian church. The earliest Christians were all Jews who accepted him as the Messiah. And those who did not accept him as the Messiah then continue on as they do today, rejecting Christ as the Messiah, awaiting the Messiah to come. Now, those who accepted Jesus as Messiah thought, though, that he would be returning in a short period of time. They had no idea that it would be a protracted time. And even Paul cautioned the Christians to not get involved in marriage or anything else that would take away their intent, purpose of waiting for the return of Christ. He didn't return, and in the later writings of Paul, he modified that. But all of the Christians in the beginning thought that Jesus would return soon. Giving fuel to that on one occasion, Peter asked of uh, Jesus, after Jesus had told Peter what he was to do, he said, what about John? And he said, if John remains here until I return, what is that to you? So everybody thought that Jesus returned before John died. The fact is, he didn't. And so this is John's letter written on Patmos to say he hasn't come back but that doesn't mean he's out of the picture. He's waiting his time. You are in a time of great tribulation now. Domitian was upon the throne. Bow down to me. If you didn't, then your life would be taken from you. They were living at a time of great trouble in trying to live up and be faithful to their faith. Now, Domitian did not attack Christians, particularly Christian because they were Christians. He tried to squelch the movement, but not fight Christians per se. That would come later. Uh, Fabia, um, Hadrian, who followed uh, the mission, would be the first one to attack Christians per se, and then the great persecution would begin. The great persecution hadn't become yet. But John says, when it comes, don't despair. Christ is on his throne. He knows what's going on. His power is just waiting to be unleashed. Yes? Well, there's no place for an opinion, really, to say that Revelation says there will be a period of a thousand years. And uh, as to... Uh, where that fits into a contemporary uh, timeline, uh, there's just no way of knowing. The fact is that uh, the idea of the Antichrist didn't appear in Revelation at all. That comes out of 1 Thessalonians, and we have taken the Antichrist and woven it into Revelation. And uh, the uh, the idea of the rapture is not in, the, in Revelation. That comes out of, uh, well, slips my mind right now, but one of the letters, and uh, has no place. And much of the 
millennium, uh, the premillennialists and all of that uh, aspect of the time of great tribulation is tied in with the rapture where the saints in Christ run. That's no part of Revelation. That's just been woven into it, having been mentioned elsewhere. But the specific things like that. Uh, now, my, my opinion is it was written for the contemporary and not an attempt to say 5,000 years from now this is what's going to happen as those who try to take it literally do. The writer continues to say soon, soon, in encouraging the people, don't despair, it's going to happen. Why it hasn't happened yet, only God knows. Jesus says only God knows. But we know that a day, a year, a thousand years in the sight of God has no meaning at all. It would be a snap of a finger to God as to when he might consummate time on earth. Could be this time and events in the world cause people to have that idea, but every generation has faced the same thing since the time then. As to an actual thousand years, I, all I can say is that that's what John said, and I don't have any reason to discount it. Do you suppose the people who were expecting to ride in on a horse were terribly disappointed when he came in on the donkey? <laughs> they had to be because had he been a reigning emperor coming in to uh, take over the kingdom, he certainly would have been astride a horse and his soldiers at his side. Uh, it was an act of humility. It must have been a comical sight to see Jesus sitting on the back of a, of a donkey. When I was a kid in Mountain City, there was a fundraising every year for the PTA to bring in a donkey baseball game. Any of you ever remember that? And this touring group would bring in the donkeys, and then he would get the leading men of the town, the doctors and the bankers and others, to make a fool of themselves and getting on those donkeys and playing baseball. And it was, it was a hilarious thing to see. To see Jesus on the back of a donkey certainly was not the image of one who had come in to conquer, but it was an act of humility.